before I get into my sermon this morning from Philippians chapter 3, I want you to understand that what we talk about today also applies to us as a nation. Obviously, this is a critical week uh, with the election in our nation. I want to acknowledge as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, uh, that my message to you today uh, is what I've already told you. That our hope is never going to be in a man or a woman. Uh, people ultimately, uh, at best, are sinners saved by grace, but will always be flawed. And that we must be careful as Christian people in placing our trust, our ultimate hope, in a person, a politician. With that being said, I want you to know also that that does not mean that we are to be detached from our world and somehow to say, oh, well, we're just a part of a, a heavenly kingdom that is not a part of this earthly kingdom. No, we are to be salt and light here. And so we have a responsibility as Christians, quite honestly, uh, and I don't have time really to talk about this, uh, we are in the shape that we are in in America, in our morality and our standards, uh, because... Um, we have been silent and we have not taken a stand. Um, quite honestly, we have no one else to blame but ourselves. If the church had been the church, then we would not be where we are today. We are in circumstances today um, that quite honestly, you wonder what is the way forward. Regardless of what happens this week, what is the way forward? Uh, Christ is the way forward. He is the one we ultimately look, look to, and He is the one who sits on the throne. Uh, God will not be shaken by this week, whatever transpires. Um, but it is time for us to draw near to Christ and to find in Him our salvation and our hope and our trust and our future, and for the church to be the church and to, to fall on our face before God and to pray. And in repentance, the greatest need in America is for revival. Uh, it is your responsibility this week, if you have not already, to vote. Um, as your pastor, I tell you, you vote your values. Vote your values. Yes, we have flawed candidates. Um, Jesus is not on the ballot. Um, but I'm, I'm telling you, you need to vote your values. It is your responsibility as a citizen, as a Christian, uh, to vote your values. And so, um, I say all that, uh, to lead into my sermon to say that we only find our hope and our peace and our joy in Christ. And be careful that your human eyes are not led to look to something else to be your source of life. It is in Christ. It is never about what we do or have done, but it is, a what, it is all about what Christ has done and continues to do. Yes, His finished work on the cross, but as He continues uh, to be our all in all, Paul in 
Philippians chapter 3. Uh, says, finally, my brethren, I do, there's a lot of jokes about preachers using that word finally, and he's in the third chapter, he's halfway through his book. In the original language, it means now the rest of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, the rest. <clears throat> so anytime this morning I say, in conclusion, you just go, okay, he just means he's within 30 minutes of being finished. Uh, Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Paul in verse 1 repeats his theme of joy. Uh, the word rejoice or joy is found 16 times in his short letter to the Philippians. That is his theme. And he says in verse 1, he said, you may think this is tedious or is not need, needed for you. I need to repoint. I need to repeat my point, my theme. Rejoice in the Lord. He says it not only here, but he comes to chapter 4, verse 4, and he says it again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy, or the command to rejoice, is the repeated theme of Paul. It, it is the point that he is making. Uh, it is necessary to repeat it. Uh, he says it's not tedious for me and it is safe for you. Uh, you say, why is it that Paul needs to repeat this theme of joy? Um, Paul repeats it because we need to hear it and we need to hear it over and over. This is very important because... In our humanness, we will always drift to the point where we look to something else to be our source of joy. It's, it's just programmed in our mind. We're going to look at the things that we can see. You're going to look at your circumstances in life and you're going to let that determine your happiness, your joy. You're going to look to what other people say about you, how things are going, and you're going to project that, how you feel, and you're going to say, this is going to be the source of my joy. 
really the most significant thing that Paul makes is the qualification to the joy. In fact, I think this is what he's actually repeating. It's not just about joy. His, his point is rejoice in the Lord. That's what they need to be reminded of. He's not just, he's not just repeating joy and rejoice and hey, be happy. You know, just choose to be happy. No, Paul's point that he has to repeat over and over is that your joy is in the Lord. That's why we're talking about this morning in Christ. And here's one of the secrets to joy that we find in Paul's letters that we find joy in a relationship with Christ and not in our religious achievements. Now Christ is the balance to all of these ideas. I could say that we find our joy in Christ and not in our circumstances. We find our joy in Christ and not in what others say about us. We find our joy in Christ and not in our feelings. But what Paul talks about in chapter 3, what we've just read, is that we find our joy in a relationship with Christ and not in our religious achievements, what we can do. Here's the the bottom line. If I just had to put it in real simple terms, we find our joy in what Christ has done and not what we have done or what we do. It's not about me. It's about Him. Paul's saying, no, I need to say this to you again. It's not tedious for me to have to say it again and again. And for you, it's safe so that you'll understand The message over and over is not just about joy, but it's a joy in the Lord. We find our joy in a relationship with Christ. It's in Him that we find our joy and our peace. And we could say all those other things. We find our love. It is in a relationship with Christ. That is the significance and the power of that phrase that He invariably qualifies joy or rejoice with. It is rejoice in the Lord. Paul makes a contrast in these verses between Christ and the flesh. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. There's a contrast that Paul lays out between Christ and the flesh. And obviously his point is going to be we need to find our joy in Christ and not in our flesh. When you look at verse 2, you go, where is this coming from? Beware of dogs. I mean, now I'm a runner and dogs are my nemesis. And Amy and I had encounters. I had had 14 miles yesterday. That's 2 hours and 28 minutes and... Um, some odd seconds. I don't remember. I was a long time out on the road, out on the roads that you live at, and there are dogs, and you never know what you're going to encounter. And Amy came to meet me, and we had another. Uh, he's not talking to me. He's not talking literally about dogs. In fact, there's, a kind of, there's parallel statements in there when he says, beware of dog, beware of dogs, evil workers, the mutilation. 
Now, obviously, this is an ongoing conversation as Paul writes to the Philippians, and so there is a story behind the words that he writes, and we're not always privy to that information. But we even see in the next verse when he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, that you begin to put the pieces together to understand what he is talking about. He is talking about those, I think scholars would call them the Judaizers, They were the people that came behind Paul after he had preached the gospel of grace to them and said, well, yeah, that may be true, but you've also got to do all of these legal things from the Jewish law in order to be right with God. You've got to do these things. Now, remember, our our basic premise today is, is my life is not about what I have done, but what Christ has done. My hope is in Him. It's not in me. It's not in my religious achievement. And Paul is talking about people who are legalists who have said, well, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to do this from the law and this from the law and this and this and you've got to abide by all these things in order to be a good Christian. There were people that came out of Judaism and they could not leave these things. They did not understand the full significance of the grace of God that frees us from all those things. These were people who were legalists. You're not going to believe what they called the people that did not follow their rules. They called them dogs. Now, we think quite affectionately of dogs. Some of us do of dogs. Not particularly me. But anyhow, I've had some people that have tried to persuade me into loving dogs and cats. It it hasn't worked yet. But anyhow, don't hate your pastor because dogs and I are not best friends. Uh... In ancient times, dogs were scavengers. They were despised. Uh, it's, it's not a term of endearment. <laughs> uh, there were packs of dogs and, yeah, they were scavengers. And so it was, it was a term that was used derogatory to refer to people who were despised. Uh, they were unclean. They were scavengers. Uh, And he uses the term that the Judaizers and the legalists referred to the people that didn't follow their rules. He used it against them. He said, beware of dogs. Evil workers, the mutilation, those who mutilate the human flesh. Very strong words. It has a, it's not just a theological point. It's a practical point that Paul says if you get pulled in to a life of legalism, of trying to abide by people's religious laws, and you depend upon that to be your source of joy, it's not going to happen because ultimately you're not going to live up to your own standards. And so he contrasts those who were the legalists who depended upon the works of the law with, with those who believed in the gospel of Christ, of, of grace. And so in verse 3 he says, For we, the Christians, are the circumcision. And the implication is the true circumcision. Who worship God in the Spirit. And so the other people who depended upon works of the law were dependent upon what they could do 
And they depended on the, in the physical realm, if you just do these things, then you will be right with God. It's about what you do in the flesh. But Paul says, no, circumcision is a matter of the heart, and it is, it is those who worship God in the spirit. And so there's a contrast between the physical and the spiritual. And in fact, in verse 3, when it says rejoice in Christ Jesus, that word rejoice is a different word than the normal word for rejoice. It literally is the word that means boast. Boast. The one side is boasting in what they can do for God. We do not boast in what we can do for God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We, rejo- we boast in what He has done. Let us glory in the cross. He's the one who's taken care of my sin. I'm not coming to God with my righteousness and say, Oh God, look at what a great person I am. And surely you're going to receive me. And you're going to be impressed by me. No, as a true Christian, you understand that my standing with God is based upon grace and is what Christ has done in His finished work on the cross. Not in what I have done, but what, in, what He has done. One of my favorite... <laughs> Brother Shane's gone this Sunday. I know this, this sermon will be recorded and will be out there. But anyhow, let me go ahead and say this. One of my favorite Shane Stover stories. And Katie's not here either, which is even better. My point being, you miss a Sunday? I could tell a story about you. That's my point. One time when... This is kind of a family story. Anyhow, I'm going to go out there. Yeah. Shane and Katie are dating. And Shane is showing out. Woo! You know. And some point in the midst of Shane showing out, Katie Harrison Stover looks at him and says, You are not impressing me. <laughs> I love that. I'm, so, I'm going to be in trouble. You didn't hear it from me. You heard it in the church hallway, maybe. She looked at Shane and she said, you are not impressing me. You know, and somehow we, we, we can get in this mindset in our human nature that, oh, I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to present myself to God and I'm going to be impressive to God and surely God's going to say, boy, you got it going on. No, we come before a holy God that our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. And somehow we think our religious achievement is going to impress God And I know God wouldn't say it sarcastically like only Katie Stover could say it. I know God wouldn't say, you're not impressing me. But that's the truth. No. You see, in Christ is where we find our joy, not in our works. And so Paul sets this contrast between Christ and the flesh. It is a contrast in confidence, Paul says. Our confidence, what we trust in. We will either trust in Christ and His finished work on the cross to make us right with God, or we will trust in our own works. And I've already told you, God's not impressed by our works. And Paul goes into this section starting in verse 4 to talk about his credentials. You see, we will either trust in Christ or we will trust in our credentials. 
And Paul goes through this whole thing because the Judaizers, those who were on the other side of this debate, the other side of the contrast, are saying, no, you've got to do all these things and you'll be right with God. And Paul says, you want to talk about credentials? You want to talk about religious works? You want to talk about religious achievement? Oh, I can go there. I've been there. I mean, Paul is the epitome of religious achievement. And so he says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence... I'm sorry. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh in what I've done. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He said, I'll put my credentials up against any of your credentials. And he goes through this thing, circumcised on the eighth day. It was circumcision was the symbol of being a good Jew and it was prescribed to be on the eighth day. Those who were proselytes came in and they were circumcised later. Paul says, no, I was born a Jew. My mom and daddy, they were good Jews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That first thing that they were supposed to do to mark me to say that I am one of God's of the stock of Israel. Paul says, I can trace my family lineage all the way back to Abraham. I'm in the bloodline of the people that God called to be a special people. I'm not somebody who joined the faith. I was born into this. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the favored son of Israel. He was the son of Israel's old age, of Jacob's old age. He was the only son who was born in the promised land. Uh, He was the tribe of the first king, Saul, that Paul or Saul would have been named for. Benjamin was the tribe that also joined with Judah that they stayed pure. to the faith than the other ten northern tribes. And even when they were sent into exile, then God brought these, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin back. It's, I, you know, the sense I get when he says of the tribe of Benjamin, it's almost like us being Americans saying, I'm from Texas. You, you're not going to believe this. When we go to Africa, people will ask us, where are you from? We'll say, well, well, you know, obviously we're American. We're from Texas. I'm sure you've heard of us. And they have. And we teach them phrases like, yee-haw. Yeah, that's what we say. We wear cowboy hats and ride horses in our state. Yee we, Yeah, I don't know about all of that. But, but seriously, they know what a Texan is. But anyhow, that's kind of what Paul, I get the sense of Paul when he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew was the language of the Jews, but it was the word that was used... I guess because of that, by those who were outside, who were, who were foreigners, who were not a part of the Jews, that they would refer to the Jews as being Hebrews. They were the people that spoke the Hebrew language. And when, they, when the Jews were scattered across the ancient world in the diaspora, uh, those who stayed true to the faith continued to speak their Hebrew and not they didn't uh, adopt the language of the people they had been sent to. No, we still speak Hebrew in our home. And Paul says, no, we, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I still speak the language. You see that actually in the stories in the book of Acts. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. 
I mean, of all the millions of Jews, there's only about 6,000 of these people that were the separated ones. Those who said, no, we will be uh, pure. We will be the special ones. We will be more diligent to the law. In fact, Paul says sometime later that even among the Pharisees, he was, he was an up-and-coming young man who was very promising. The religious, most religious of all the religious concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I was so religious that when those who didn't believe like me and us, I'd have them arrested and killed. That's how zealous I was for the faith. I was a persecutor of the church. Paul would say, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. All the stipulations, not just in the law, but in the writings of the religious leaders, all these little things you had to do in order to be righteous. Paul says, any man that was within the group could look at my life and to see if I had violated any of the even the most minute of the legal statutes that had been part of the traditions of of man in the religious community, Paul says, nothing. You couldn't find one fault with my life. I lived out the religious life that these people prescribed. Paul says, I will stake my credentials against anyone else. You know what remi- this reminds me of? Is this truth that religious, le- religious people keep score with God. We have our own little scorecard. And we say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and I'm going to be right with God. You understand though? That's my scorecard for me to think that I'm okay with God being a religious person. It's not God holy God's scorecard of my life who can look in my heart and and discern my motivations. Paul said, "I I I will put my credentials against anybody else. Then Paul begins to say, I walked away from all of that. I was as religious as any person could be. And I one day walked away. For a personal relationship with Christ. In verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me that were on my scorecard, these I have counted loss I've walked away for Christ yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ Paul says I have left all of my religious credentials for the sake of Christ that I might know him when that when Paul uses that word know, it is, it is the word that 
speaks of a personal, intimate relationship. It is the, when the Greeks translated the Old Testament in the Septuagint, they used this word when it says in Genesis, Adam knew Eve. Personal, intimate relationship. Paul says that I might know Christ, that I might be in a personal, intimate relationship with Him. Christianity is not about our religious performance or achievement, but it is about a relationship with Christ. Paul counted all his religious achievements as worthless, and he counted Christ as priceless. In fact, he said the things that he used to accumulate in his credentials, he says in verse 8, are, and count them as rubbish. This is probably also not an appropriate point, but I vividly remember being about 20 years of age and sitting in a Greek class, Dr. Richard Cutter, Baylor University, third floor of Old Main. And we were studying the book of Philippians and we came to this word rubbish. And Dr. Cutter, who was 154 at that point, he lived several more decades. I'm sure he lowered his glasses like I have to wear now. And he said, boys, skubala, skubala in the Greek means, this is what Dr. Cutter said, he said, barn yard, barn yard dung. Oh, wow. So it's kind of one of my favorite, you know. So I'm, Actually, if you see me walking down the church hallway or somewhere and I say skubala, you can Brother Darrell, watch your language, man. Come on, we got kids around here. Uh, barnyard dung. That's what I consider all of my religious achievements. Skubala. Verse 9, And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he talks about a righteousness that is through faith. And so faith is a word that speaks about uh, what we trust in. And Paul said he had trusted to be in a right relationship with God because of the finished work of Christ. You know, here's kind of the bottom line. Of all people in history who have tried the epitome of both approaches to God, whether it's man-centered or Christ-centered, Paul would say, I, I've, I've done it. I've done it, both of them. I've tried to be religious to be right with God. And you know what I believe Paul communicates between the lines of his words? I did all of that stuff. Everything. Dotted the T's and... No. Crossed the T's and dotted the I's. And I believe Paul's testimony was, I found no joy in that. But one day I encountered Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, and He changed my life, and I I came to know Him and have a personal relationship with Him. And Paul says, in Him I found joy. So Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. 
It's in a personal relationship with Him and not in our religious achievement. And finally, as he concludes in verse 10 and 11, Wow! That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul had come to the end of himself and he came to Christ. And Paul would say, when you come to the end of yourself and you find Christ, a personal relationship with Him, you will experience His power and His presence. When Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, Paul is not just thinking about, when he says the power of His resurrection, Paul is not just thinking about that event in which Jesus was raised from the dead. He's saying, I want to experience, I want to have a personal relationship with Him so that I experience that same power that He has that could bring life out of death, the power of the resurrection. He doesn't mean it's just an experience back then. He's not looking back and saying, oh God, what a wonderful Savior we have that He has the power to be raised from the dead. Paul's saying, no, that I may know Him and that I might know the power of His resurrection right now in my life, that He has the power to take that which is dead and make it alive. But you know what we have to do to experience the resurrection power? We have to come to the end of ourselves. As long as we hold on to our power, and it's about my righteousness, my religious achievement, my faith is about me doing this and this and this, as long as you are full of yourself, you'll never experience the power of the resurrection. And you know in my life, and I said this in my life group this morning, just to be honest, When I'm in America, I live pretty far from the edge. But when I go to Africa, God pushes me to the edge. And it's amazing to me when we come to the circumstances where we can't do anything about it. I can't write a check. I can't use a credit card. There are circumstances I can't change when I come to the end of myself. then I can experience the power of His resurrection. He not only says that, that we experience His power, but we also experience His presence, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, but I also that I might know the fellowship of His sufferings. Just like in the resurrection, Paul is not thinking of just a past event. He is thinking about the present implication of that. When he talks about the fellowship of his sufferings, he's not just talking about, oh, that I might have an understanding of what Christ suffered on the cross. That I might have that in common. And yes, there is a sense, though, in our present life, that, and he says in that last phrase, being conformed to his death, when I come to the end of myself, and I I suffer... For the sake of Christ, 
He's saying that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and that I might know the fellowship that having in common with his sufferings that in Paul is saying in the midst of my sufferings that I might experience his fellowship, his presence. That when I come to the end of myself, that I might experience his resurrection power. When I come to the end of myself and I find myself in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ because the world opposes me, that I might find Christ there in his presence. The fellowship of his sufferings. Not that I would be in the midst of Christ's sufferings, but that Christ would be in the midst of my sufferings for the sake of the gospel. And you know what is true? That when we come to the end of ourselves, and Paul would say this, and we even come to the place of suffering, that the presence of Christ floods our lives. And the one thing that I know that is characteristic of the presence of Christ is joy. Where the presence of God is, where the presence of Christ is, there will be joy. Now, this is a hard truth, and we've talked about it a month or so ago. We have to come to the end of ourselves. And Paul says, and when we have to pay the price of suffering, even as Christ suffered on the cross, do, do you all remember the video clip I showed you of the insanity of God, those in the midst of persecution? Do you, When that man, the missionary, went to interview those people across the world who are in the persecuted church, the, what they said, what they said, he said, teach me, what is it, what happens when you put your life on the line? And they, they said two things, and it comes from this verse that you experience the resurrection power as only you can experience when you come to the very end of yourself. And you experience the presence of Christ as you can in no other way. And what we do in our life is we hold on ourselves and we are secure and we back away from the edge and we protect ourselves and we have money and we have possessions and we have relationships and we have all these built-in safeguards to make sure nothing bad happens to me. And we live so far from the edge that we can't experience the power and the presence of God. But when we lose ourselves, Paul's words, we come to the end of ourselves it's there that we experience His power and His presence. And in His presence is joy. And the persecuted church, and Paul would say, at the point that he is about to suffer death, it was in that experience that I, that I experienced the presence and the joy of Christ that I could experience in no other way. Hmm. The secret to joy is that we find joy in our relationship with Christ and not in our religious achievements. Hmm. The joy killer this Sunday, the joy killer is being full of ourselves. 
we are full of ourselves, it will kill our joy. But if we will give our lives and surrender our lives to Christ in a relationship with Him, we will find His presence there. And in His presence will be joy. I'm going to pray if you'll stand with me this morning. Father, today as a community of faith, we acknowledge that you are our source of everything. And Father, as Americans today, we acknowledge that Christ, you are the source of our hope. You are, the, you are our future. And so, Father, we pray that we would humble ourselves and we would repent and we would surrender our lives to Christ and that we would be a part of a kingdom that will never end. And Father, I thank you through Christ you have provided all things we needed for life and godliness and righteousness and joy and love and hope. And Father, I pray that this morning you would, you would empty us and you would fill us with yourself. So Father, we pray that you would move in our midst today in doing the work that only you can do. And I pray it in the name of Christ.